turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to imagine a compass. Okay, you're all very familiar with that. On a compass, you've got north, south, east, and west. And almost every time when you hear the word leadership, and if you're thinking in terms of relationship to a compass, uh, you automatically think south, right? You kind of think of the people that are underneath you. So if, like, you're a parent, I just want to tell you you're a leader, okay? Did you know that? Wow. And you've got kids underneath you, okay? When you think of leadership, we oftentimes think of south. If you're uh, heading up a company or you're a manager, you've got people that, you are, that report to you, and you think about how I can lead them well. But there's other aspects of leadership that are critically important. You also... If you're a leader, you need to know how to think to lead north, meaning how do you lead those who are even above you? How is it that you can be of influence over the folks that you are working that actually you report to? And then, of course, there's the people that work kind of side by side. They're peers. They're east and they're west. And you need to create win-win situations. You need to know how to do that if you're going to be a good and effective leader. And all of those aspects of leadership are critically important. If you're a leader, you're like, I know exactly what you're talking about. But let me tell you the dynamic of leadership that is oftentimes omitted. In fact, it's the hardest aspect of leadership. And that is, how is it that you actually lead yourself? I mean, it is so difficult that most people, you actually choose to ignore kind of what's going on even in your own life and you're you might focus on i just need to encourage others or i need just to get these things put into place but the actually the most difficult and the most important part is self-leadership you know it's really interesting when you look at jesus and his ministry on the earth there's a lot that we're supposed to learn from jesus life i mean he's lord and savior he's the he's the one who goes to the cross pays for our sins He's the resurrected one. He's the God-man. But while he was on the earth, do you know what the pattern of his life was? In fact, you find it in, chapter, in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. It's like all these people kept coming to Jesus, and word was spreading, and he's going farther and farther, and large crowds were gathering to him. And he's out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's doing works that authenticate that he's God. But Luke remarks this in chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. The pattern of his life was to find times to recalibrate, to pray, to once again dwell and bask in the goodness and the love of his Father, to stay focused on the mission, to put distraction at bay, to keep his calling sure. I mean, he was actually training his 12 with the carry on his mission It was in these times where he pulled away to recalibrate that gave him the focus that he needed in life. And we need the same thing. We need a means to recalibrate. And even when we're talking about this, you're like, well, how in the world do you do that? How is it that you bring refocus to your life? How do you keep your life from being like a shipwreck? Well, I tell you, if you don't know how to do this, uh, you're, you're in some pretty perilous waters. You could be in some deep trouble. In fact, it probably wouldn't be a stretch of imagination to realize that there's probably a lot of us that are in this room this morning that we're kind of just like a, like a, like a piece of hair away from breakdown or total discouragement. Uh, if we don't learn how to do this, we're going to be overwhelmed by our circumstances 
Every one of us faces this. We all have difficulty. We all have major discouragements. Man, life has a way of just sapping it out of you, right? Some of you just came in here. You're barely alive, and I am glad you're here. We're praying that God is going to revive your soul. But this is such a critical aspect of life that Paul actually dives in, in this, as we're going through 1 Timothy, and he actually counsels Timothy on how to bring a recalibration to his life. I think Paul is deeply concerned that Timothy is about to be overwhelmed by the issues and the circumstances that he's facing. In fact, you remember when we started this book in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Because I have the idea that Timothy was ready to abandon the post. Because life was hard and it was difficult and he was feeling highly discouraged. And let me just give you some of these emotional gauges. When you know that life seems to be just kind of like overwhelming you and you're feeling the pressure. Like, for instance, like you have a desire to escape. Like, I, I literally, I'd like to get in my car and I just want to keep driving. And I, Okay? Some of you are there, right there, right? And maybe you drove to the church. Great, I'm glad you're here, okay? But you have this desire, I just want to escape out of my life, out of my circumstances. Or another one is, you actually have a family aversion. I mean, you catch you on your good day, or you at your full strength, or if you medium strength, and you want to be with your family, and you like to engage, and it is fun, and yeah, it's crazy, but yeah. But when you're totally depleted, and you have no emotional reserves, you find yourself hiding even from your family. And even while you're there, it's like, you're like, Stuck on the tube, or you got a newspaper in front of your face, or you're hiding in your room somewhere, pretending to do business. But let me tell you, these are emotional signs that you're in depletion. Or another one is just your attitude towards spiritual practices. You have a difficult time praying, or even being in the Word. Even the thought of being in the Word of God or praying sounds like, ah, it's heavy. And what's happened is that these are emotional gauges to say, you're in trouble. You need recalibration. You need revival and you need renewal. I was reading, uh, there's a book Bill, Bill Hybels wrote on courageous leadership. Uh, in this book, he actually writes of this top Christian leader. I'll not name him, but years ago he went down. Very public, very well known. There were lots of articles that were published on this incident. And in one of these articles, that it wrote of this fallen Christian pastor said, quote, he sank like a rock, beat up, burned out, angry and depressed, no good to himself and no good to the people he loved. That was the description of this guy. And the pastor actually eventually wrote of his experiences. And I'd like to read you just a quote of what he said. He said, eventually, I couldn't even sleep at night. Another wave of broken lives would come to the shore of the church. And I found that I didn't have enough compassion for them anymore. And inside, I became angry, angry, angry. Many people still wonder whatever happened to me. They think I had a crisis of faith. The fact is, I simply collapsed on the inside. You know, what this pastor should have done is he should have taken a time out. This pastor should have done what Jesus did and pull away out of the action to recalibrate, renew. He should have done whatever it took, whether it take a sabbatical, go speak with a Christian counselor, go find another pastor. The reality is he didn't exercise the art of self-leadership and he paid a tremendous price and he left a lot of very disillusioned people behind him. 
How in the world do you recalibrate your life? How do you spare yourself from shipwreck and disaster? Well, I want you to know how to do it. Paul is critically concerned that Timothy knows how to do it. In fact, that's what he does in chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. He actually outlines what does this look like. And you need to know that if, if you're in the game, meaning not only you trust in Christ, but you actually realize that God only has not only done great things for you through Christ, but he intends to do great things through you, that you're a vessel fit for honorable use, and you're actually starting to get serious about talking to others about Christ. You're concerned about the maturity of other people. You're involved in ministry. You've actually got a picture of discipling. You actually are trying to invest in your kids. You're a target, and you're dangerous. Dangerous to Satan. And although he cannot rob you of your eternal life, he can demoralize you and destroy your joy And he can leave you rather incapacitated unless you learn how to recalibrate in the heat of life. I'll just give you a simple principle. The life you lead is dependent upon who you follow. The life you lead is dependent upon who you follow. And remember, just last week we saw it. Who is it that we as Christians are following? Are we following a pastor, a missionary? Uh, just some guy in the neighborhood, somebody we're watching on TV, which would be a really bad idea. No, verse 17, you might want to underline it. We follow the king. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We follow the king. So what are the key components of staying spiritually strong as a lifetime follower of Christ? Well, notice what Paul is doing. Verse 18 He starts listing them out. And the first one is this. You need to keep your calling sure. Paul says, verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. What Paul is doing is he's saying, Hey, remember your calling. Timothy had been entrusted with the gospel. He had a mission to accomplish. Remember, what is the goal of all Christian ministry? You find it in chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of what? Of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Our goal is to see people come to know Christ and experience maturity in him. And Timothy is to go about doing this through public preaching. He's to preach the word and through personal discipleship. Now, he had people that were actually subverting these efforts. In chapter 1, verse 3, these are these false teachers that were, had started rising in the church. They're creating a great degree of havoc. Paul says, you've got to stay in the game. We, have, we can't lose sight of what you've been entrusted with. You have a tremendous calling. And notice what the text says. In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, what took place in the early church before the canon of Scripture was closed... God would sometimes speak through his individual prophets that would that would speak a word that would actually give guidance and direction in specific instances or in a particular church. And this was this was an occurrence that took place until all of scripture was completed. And these prophecies like this then conclude because there was no further need for them. But Timothy himself had been other men had spoken to him and said, God has called you for service, for specifically a unique function in his church. And I believe it was probably his commission as a missionary. 
And the idea is, Paul is saying, remember, you've been called by God for a particular service. You've got to stay with it. And he even says, Timothy, my son, do you see the enduring and the, uh, the, just the heart and the affection that he has for Timothy? This is what good discipleship looks like. You're not just trying to pass on truth to people. You want to connect with their heart. They need to know that you love them, that you are for them, that you care for them. And so that's what Timothy is, is hearing from Paul. You're my son. I love you like a son. You've been called by God. You've got a unique purpose. And what we need to realize, friends, is that we have a calling on our life. If you know Jesus Christ, he has called you to fulfill his mission in this world. And it's, don't think like, well, it's just for pastors or missionaries. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor or a professor, you are a tech, you're a secretary, you are a pharmacist. God has called you, equipped you, and he wants you to represent him in the sphere in which he's placed you. We actually just spent a couple months ago looking at the theology of work. God has called us to work, and our work is a big part of our ministry. What is it that God has called you to in this season of life? You've got to keep your calling sure. What is it? Could you put it on a piece of paper, what you're called to, your roles, your responsibilities. Uh, you can find this by looking at kind of what is it, vocational ministry that God has equipped and called me to do. Likely you're probably serving in it. And what are your roles and responsibilities? Parent, grandparent, child, what, friend. What is it? And the other thing you need to know is what are your gifts? What has God uniquely equipped you to do? What do you desire? What do you do well? What do others affirm? And what do you delight in doing? You need to think these things through because if your calling isn't sure, then what happens is when you start facing heat and problems, you just abandon, you just like kind of give up and you kind of pull out. And I wonder if that's not happening with our good friend Timothy right now. That's why Paul is reminding him, you keep your calling sure. Let me give you another element that you need to be fully aware of. If we're going to be walking with Christ for the long haul, and we're going to be in the ball game. Not only do you have to keep your calling sure, but you've got to keep your vision clear. Notice what he said. You need to be fighting the good fight. And what he's doing is reminding him that you have something to accomplish. You need to see people brought to maturity. And this is, he, when he says fight the good fight, he's calling him it's the fight for personal holiness it's a fight to engage and share the gospel. How many of you have an aversion at different times to try to share your faith? Am I the only one that just all of a sudden starts like, think of a thousand reasons why I shouldn't share the gospel with someone? Do you, what do you think is going on there? This is a fight. You've got to have a little backbone and courage. You need the Holy Spirit to actually have the strength to engage. Or, or the whole idea, remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2? He's writing, he's saying, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I fully intend that just like Jesus poured in his men, that you are to continue this pattern of discipleship. Why do you think that discipleship is just such a confused concept and so very few people actually do it? Because it's a fight. 
it's difficult. It's, tr- it's, it's, it's hard. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, keep your vision clear. If you are a leader and you don't have a vision as to what you're trying to accomplish, if it's pretty fuzzy, let me assure you, anybody that you're trying to lead, it's, it's equally more unclear. Okay? I mean, it's just like, what are you trying to accomplish? So what is it that you're trying to accomplish in your family, if you're a leader in your family, in your ministry? The, the folks that you're, you're working with and the folks that are reporting to you, what, what exactly are you trying to accomplish? Are you a professor? What, what is it that you're trying to accomplish with your students? Are you just running them through classes or do you have a vision of what could be accomplished in their life? When you're discipling someone, you have to have a vision of, of what it is that I would like to see this person be able to experience and know. At Fellowship, we had to make our vision statement so simple that I could remember it. So we had to keep it down to four words, okay? And it's really simple. It's think of an oak tree, and it's growing deep, reaching out. As an oak tree grows deep and its roots sink deep into the ground, there's a residual effect where it branches out and bears fruit. That fruit has the potential to hit the ground and reproduce and make other trees. And that's the picture. All of us identifying and knowing Christ, Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, we are drawn to him. And as we're drawn to him and we read his word and we pray, we sink deep roots. As we fellowship with one another, as we grow in worship, we start branching out and, and we start bearing fruit. That's the vision. That's the vision of our church. That's the vision I've got for my family. That's what I want desperately for my kids. That's what I'm praying for is for their maturity in Christ. It's simple. It's our logo. We, we want to be crystal clear because this is the vision that God has for his church. Chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is what? Is that people would have, notice what the text says, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They have maturity in Christ. Let me give you a third element. If you're going to be uh, staying in the lifetime, staying spiritually strong, walking with Christ, what is this... What is this going to look like? Well, you need to keep your calling sure. You need to keep your vision clear. Let me give you a third, though. You have to keep your passion hot. You know, you can actually be sure of your calling and kind of have a clear picture of what, what you're trying to accomplish. But if you have no passion, you are not going to be very effective. Notice when Paul said, fight the good fight. He didn't just say, hey, hang in there with a the good fight. He said, fight the good fight. Now, I'm not a fighter, and I hope that you guys aren't either, which was really interesting, by the way. This is totally an aside, but we were at, at our men's retreat, and they, we were, had to share the camp this year, and they had over 100 Taekwondo experts, and they were running their camp there at the same time, and so we warned our men to stay away from them, and Two of our boys forgot their sleeping bags, and I was trying to help them find some. And I went to this one room and watched, and they're all sparring, and they have national champion on their back of their little dojos and stuff like that. And they are all totally intense. You know what I'm saying? And, like, and I, I just hope that none of our guys mess with any of these guys because this will never end up well. But you know what? If, if you're fighting, guess what? There is an intensity to the battle. I mean, you've got some adrenaline flowing. To fight the good fight, you've got to have your passion hot. And that's what, when, when Paul says, fight the good fight, this isn't a one-time occurrence. Later on in chapter 6, he tells them the same thing. Chapter 6, I think, verse 12, fight the good fight. 
And when even Paul ends his life, just at the very end, he's writing another letter to Timothy and he says, I have fought the good fight. I was engaged. I've had passion to the end. I poured out my life like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have what? I have fought the good fight. We need a passion for Christ. And how, how is it that you find a passion for Christ? By seeing him for who he is. By spending time with him. By enjoying him. I mean, Frank, if you're fired up for Christ... Because you're seeing his goodness in life. You, you haven't gotten over the fact that you have been redeemed and saved from your own sins. You know what happens? You're contagious. You can't help but to talk to others. You actually start glowing. You can kind of see it in people's eyes when there is that fire of Christ burning deep in their life. That's what Paul's saying. Timothy, fight the good fight. That means you've got to You've got to have a passion for Christ in your life. And if you've lost it, there is no one but you that can really address it. Don't think that your family's going to rescue you or your small group. You've got to go to the Lord himself. And I'm going to give you these killer D's. We've mentioned them before. But there's some things that can really sap it out of you. Distractions. Whether that be your entertainment or your TV or, or just whatnot. You're just totally distracted with life that you kind of lose sight of Jesus and spending time with him. Or discouragement. Life is hard. There's always discouraging circumstances. If you don't have a way of recalibrating and going back to the Lord, man, this can do a number on you. This can twist you in some places you didn't think you could be twisted. And you get sidelined pretty quick. Or another one, disengagement. You just, you just pull out. You become, you just don't even become involved. Pretty soon, you just don't even come to church. You just, you just fall off to the wayside. And you lose your passion. And you haven't lost your salvation. But you've certainly lost your joy and your effectiveness. And let me give you one other, just disqualifications. You do some blatant sin and it puts you out of the game for a while until restoration takes place. You know, when your emotional fuel is low, you can't pull an indie pit stop. You ever watch that? You ever watch the, the races? You know, and the cars are going to like a zillion miles an hour, you know, and it's just crazy. It's insanity on TV. And then they pull into these pit stops, and you see these guys, they're just literally flying. Tires are going everywhere. They're spraying oil. and I mean, there's, hopefully you're not spraying oil, but they're, you're, they're filling this car up. They're doing all these things, and they're having that little second thing. And then, you know, like, next thing you know, they're just out of there. And we think like, we live such a fast-paced life. We've got light coming at us a thousand miles an hour. Things are beeping. Phones are going on. We're getting emails. Even as we're sitting there, you're getting texted about all the things that you should be doing. There's, it's just pressure, 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 all these demands. And we, what happens is our battery just goes. It's kind of like this. We should try this someday. Go out and turn on everything in your car without turning it on. Like all the lights, put the air conditioning on full blast, blinkers, defroster, turn on the radio, crank it. And you know how long that will last? About 10 minutes. So kids, don't try this with your parents' car. It will not end up good for you, okay? And what happens is the battery just goes... And you can't pull that battery out and take it to the mechanic and say, oh man, you know... I got about 10 minutes worth of good use of this. Can you put it on the recharger for 10 minutes and get that thing all pumped back and juice back up because I got to get going? The tenant's going to go, no, 
Now, it's, it's going to take seven or eight hours. We've got to put it on the overnight recharger, right? No, it only took 10 minutes to drain, 10 minutes to get back up. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with your battery, and it will not work that way with your life. Most of us hit Friday, and we're probably in semi-depletion, right? You've got to be able to recharge and refocus. And you've got to find out what that is. What is it that revives you and recharges you? For Timothy, this was obviously a big issue. And it was obviously a big issue for Paul because he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you, literally to fan the flame. Don't set patterns in your life where you're just, are just rather complacent, lackadaisical, and just kind of going through the motions whenever it's convenient. God wants us to experience the first love of Jesus because that becomes the compelling force. His spirit is fully operational because there is a genuine love for Christ. So you need to develop a sustainability in your pace. What are the things that recharge you and refresh you? And that, yeah, it could be anything from running to reading magazines or hanging out in your backyard, and these are all good things. And you've got to figure out what it is for you. But it also must include spending time with the God who's the source of our strength. Just to open up the word in quietness. On our men's retreat, we give our guys an hour and a half quiet time, and we tell them, don't talk to anybody. And it's probably the best hour and a half of the retreat. Just to be with God alone, extended time recharged batteries. If you're going to walk with Christ for a lifetime, you need to keep your calling sure, your, your vision clear, your passion hot. But one other thing I need to point out to you. You need to keep your spiritual health strong. Notice this. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, keeping faith and a good conscience keeping faith and a good conscience. The, the idea is that keep trusting in the Lord. You keep focused on him. Keep your faith because Christ is our strength, our peace, our hope, our identity. And you've got to be weaned off the things of this world. If you keep going back to the things of the world to find your strength, you are always going to be sorely disappointed. God has called you unto himself. He wants you to experience the joy that is found in Christ. And that's what faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. It is trusting in him, being revived by him, living by faith. That's how the righteous live. We experience salvation by trusting Christ in faith, but we live by moving forward in faith, faith in him. Faith that no matter what I face, God is with me. That his sovereign control of my life is so great that everything under his control means that nothing really is out of control, even when it seems like it. And so Paul says, remember what spiritual strength looks like, Timothy. Keeping faith. Keep on keeping faith and a good conscience. Your conscience is this warning mechanism in your life. Every person has a conscience, and it's based upon your highest knowledge of right or wrong. And if you're about to do something, you're contemplating something that you know to be wrong. It goes off and goes, uh-uh, you shouldn't do it. And you start feeling bad, guilty, shameful. And if you violate your conscience and you go, I don't care. I really want to do this or see this or say this or whatever. What happens is you feel guilt, shame, 
That's all the workings of a conscience. And if you get to a place where you start ignoring your conscience, let's, let me tell you what starts happening. Your heart starts to become hard. And you can get to a place where your conscience is actually rendered ineffective. If you want to see an example of what that looks like, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, look at that. But the Spirit explicitly says that latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars. Notice this, seared, literally cauterized in their own conscience as with a branding iron. That's what happens when you continually violate your conscience. And pretty soon it doesn't even work right. And you don't live right. And you get sidelined. And so he says, you need to keep faith and a good conscience. Conscience is to your soul what pain is to your body. You know, when you do something and it causes pain to your body, it's like, whoa, you better stop because you're going to really get messed up if you keep going. That's what pain does, right? And that's what your doctors and your physical therapists can tell you. If it hurts, stop, okay? Right? So if you're really hurt, don't keep playing basketball, okay? Whatever you're doing, you need to stop. It's your body saying, "Uh uh-uh, no more. When your conscience goes off and says, no, uh-uh, and a scripture verse even comes to your mind as the Spirit brings it to your mind, you violate that, you are putting yourself in danger and in trouble. That's why God has given us a conscience. It is all part of spiritual health. And so he says, keeping faith and a good conscience. And the way you do that is you keep Christ at the center of your life. Just keep focusing on Jesus at the center. Keep an intake of his word, and that informs your conscience, and you live a holy life. And do you know why it's so important that Timothy leads a holy life? Because if you're going to be a leader, you have to have what is called moral integrity. You have to not only know the truth, but you have to live it. If you are a parent, it is not enough just for you to tell your kids what they should do. You've got to model it for them. And they pick up pretty quickly if you're drastically inconsistent. If you're going to be a leader in a ministry, you have to show the people how to live as well as tell them. And Timothy, keep faith and a good conscience. It doesn't matter where you're at, whether you're a brand new believer or you're fairly mature. These are two essential elements to spiritual health. And it is so important that you and I live our life against the yardstick of God's word. So, this is, these are the elements of how you actually recalibrate your life. This is how you do it. It's spelled out right out here. But if you're sitting there going, eh, that's all real nice, and about 30 minutes from now I'm going to forget pretty much everything you said, I would like to issue this warning. And it's not from me. It's from God's word. What could potentially happen when you don't take God and his word seriously on this issue of recalibration and staying focused. Well, notice verse 19. You want to keep faith in a good conscience, then notice what he said. Paul issues this warning to Timothy, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Let me just tell you what could potentially happen. You can reject your conscience. You see that? Which some have rejected. You come to a place where like your conscience is like a rudder and it's kind of guiding you through the reefs and the corals and keeping you away from the edge so you don't crash. What happens when you start violating your conscience and no longer pay attention? 
Well, he says, if you've, you reject it, you can reject your conscience. And there can be some serious consequences. I've got a good friend. We went to seminary together. Uh, he's a sharp fellow, had a significant ministry. He authored or co-authored several books, some of which are on my shelf. He also blew up his life. You know what happened? When I sat down and talked to him, he didn't follow his conscience. He told me I came to a place I was so depleted, and I was running 100 miles an hour, and he went to some places that he should have never went, and it was very costly. Paul said there are some that have rejected this, and they have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Let me tell you, that's the second element that could potentially happen. Shipwreck in regard to your faith. And it's, it really literally should read the faith. See, God's faith, faith in Christ, the viability of his word, where you are in it, you believe it, you are trusted, it is meant to have a certain pro- product in your life. It's bring, meant to bring you to maturity. But if you violate these things, your life, your faith, can be a shipwreck. And that's what Timothy is being warned of. You don't want to be like some of those who rejected their conscience. They've made shipwreck of their faith. Now, when you look at the shipwreck of the faith, there's a, this, this is disastrous. Because especially if you're a leader, i.e. a parent, a grandparent, you're leading a ministry, you're the known Christian, but you're also at work and you've got people reporting to you, and you go down in flames, man, there is a lot of residual negative effect that comes with that. And so he says, you want to be real careful that you don't become a shipwreck. Now, where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. What's Ephesus? It is a port city. It's actually one of the primary port cities in the eastern Mediterranean. And shipwrecks were rather common. They didn't have compass. Didn't have a way to really navigate very well. And so a shipwreck, this was a pretty common occurrence. And it meant devastation to life. And that's what happens when you ignore what Paul is saying right here in in counseling Timothy. And then the final one, he said this in verse 20. And this is very sobering. He says, when he spoke of shipwrecks in regard to their faith and those who rejected their uh, conscience, he says, verse 20, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Now, whoa, you're going, whoa, whoa, what's going on there? He names two guys, very familiar. They had actually come to the place where Paul said they need to be out of the church. Handed over to Satan is another way of saying you move outside of the protection and the comfort and the strength of the church because you're rejecting Christ and his gospel and you will not be persuaded that what you're doing is wrong. This isn't an idea that Paul came up with. By the way, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 18. I will build my church, and this is what happens. When you've got folks that are blatantly sinning, that will not submit to the word of God or to the authority of Christ, you you personally go and you talk to them. Then you take one or two others, and then you take it to the church, and if they still won't listen, Jesus said, I want them out of the body. Because there's one of two things that are happening. Either one... They are a Christian, and they're just sinning, and they will repent when they find out just how bad it is to be outside of the protection of the church, and they will come back, and there'll be full restoration, and that is the ideal, and that's what Paul is after here. So they'll be taught 
not to blaspheme. But the second one is, it'll be revealed that they really weren't Christians in the first place. And they will continue on their merry way until they face the ultimate destruction. You see, if you reject these things, you put yourself in a position where you could have widespread, collateral damage. Now, friends, what I just told you here, if you don't follow this advice and this recommendation that Paul is walking Timothy through, shipwreck, shipwreck of your faith, doesn't necessarily mean that you lose your salvation. If you're, if you're a Christian, you can't lose eternal life. But you sure can make a mess of things for you and a lot of others. During 1923, uh, there was a training exercise with a naval destroyer called the USS Delphi, and it was leading a flotilla of seven destroyers. They were going down the coast by California. Uh, the, it was being uh, this mission, they were actually doing this training exercise, was being captained by Lieutenant Commander Donald T. Hunter. He was a very experienced navigator. He also was an tr- instructor at the Naval Academy. And all of a sudden, this just like really deep, thick fog came upon these ships. Even the commander said it was like pea soup. They literally couldn't hardly tell where they were at. And the commander, this Donald Hunter, he wasn't exactly sure. And they, they weren't exactly sure how far off they were on the coast. But he had a reputation of just going for it and just making kind of these just kind of gut level calls and so he just goes plowing forward and he had them going at 20 knots even though they couldn't see and they weren't even sure where they were at and he didn't realize that he was sending them right into devil's jaw which is two miles off of the the coast of california and they came colliding in there starting with the delphi and they hit devil's jaw and they're hitting this at 20 knots and they hit that rocky point and literally just tore this ship in fact you can see pictures of this And all behind him came all the other destroyers, one after another. They all go crashing into these rocks. Twenty-two naval men died that day. Every single one of those ships was lost. It was considered one of the worst peacetime naval disasters in history, and it was completely avoidable. But you you had a guy who wouldn't stop and recalibrate and think about where he's going and who he's leading. Shipwreck. Don't make one of your life or of your faith. That's what Paul is doing here with Timothy. And he's doing here with us. I want you to walk with Christ for a lifetime. And friends, I love you. And I want each one of you to know the goodness of the Lord for a lifetime. Do this and live well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. It is powerful and it is clear. I would pray, Father, that you would continue just to cultivate in us a joy in Christ. Help us to understand our calling. Give us a vision for what you're seeking in our life. Keep our passion hot. Would you give us spiritual strength in you? Strong faith, a good conscience. And keep us from shipwreck. And Father, if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ, would today they simply turn from their sins and trust him who is Lord. And for all of us, would we have a renewal and revival in our faith in such a way that we not only stay with the mission, but we do so with the joy of contagious faith in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.